Right. Now the, the men and their wives raised a great cry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered then in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, and olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, God may shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years in all, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, who those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistance also lorded, assistance also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of the wall. All my men were assembled for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. 
and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I've done for these people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. I think I've got all my wires in the right place, but um, can you just, at the back, just give a quick nod to say we're okay. Good. Good. Doesn't feel very comfortable, but I think it'll be all right. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Richard Portlock. I'm a church member here, and my task this morning is to share with you some thoughts in the latest installment of the story of Nehemiah that we've been going through. Um, you're likely to want to follow um, the, the passage which is on page 487 uh, of your church Bibles in front of you. Um, it starts on put page 487, very quickly goes on to page 488, where most of it is. Shall we just pray as we start together, please? Heavenly Father, please help us to understand what you're saying to us today through this passage of your word and to obey it. May we meet you this morning. Amen. So to recap, Nehemiah was part of the Jewish people in exile in Persia, during which time Jerusalem had been destroyed and was in complete decay. With the permission of the Persian king, Nehemiah was allowed back with other returning exiles to rebuild the walls of the city. And today we learn, for the first time in the book, actually in verse 14, we learn that Nehemiah had been appointed, before he set out, to act as governor of Judah on his return. So it was going to be his job to respond to problems affecting the people. And here, there were certainly serious problems. So what were they, and how did they arise? Well, there was a devastating economic crisis caused by famine. Although the consequences had probably been building for a while, and not just during the period of a few short weeks while the work was going on on the walls, the building, prob the building program had probably made them worse because the workers had to be brought in from the surrounding towns and villages into Jerusalem to do the work. And that meant they had to suspend their activity of daily work, their day job, in order to attend and join in. And in a hand-to-mouth existence, where survival was quite marginal, that would have had an impact very quickly. So their sacrificial efforts came at a cost. And on top of that, on top of that, the relatively wealthy in the Jewish community were using the crisis to their advantage. Grain prices increased. There were still taxes to pay. People had to resort to borrowings and mortgaging their land just to survive. And the leaders were charging the poor 
high rates of interest, a practice called usury, which God had expressly forbidden. To make matters worse, some enslaved Jewish people who had been liberated following the return to Jerusalem from exile were being sold back into slavery to raise money for their families, meaning that they'd have to be brought back or bought back all over again. The oppressive practices being followed were against principles that God had laid down in his law, which were designed to mitigate disparities in wealth by providing for debt relief and providing also that after a certain period, slaves would be freed. So overall, it was a social, economic, moral, spiritual mess. Let's consider for a moment how Nehemiah reacts to that. Firstly, in verse 6, he's angry at the injustice. Anger at injustice is allowed. It's sometimes required. Secondly, in verse 7, he pauses to reflect on what to do. He doesn't just dive straight in, pauses to reflect. And after that, thirdly, he calls a meeting and he openly confronts the abuses in front of everyone. Fourthly, he both reproaches and reasons he seeks to persuade. He points out, in effect, that the distinctive godliness, which was supposed to be a characteristic of God's people, was missing here, resulting in a bad witness to the other nations, the Gentile nations, and dishonoring, therefore, to God. Fifthly, in verse 11, Nehemiah's approach achieves buy-in, not just to the idea that something is wrong, but also to the things which needed to be put right, the restitution of what had been taken from people, which would, of course, come at some cost to the wealthy. Sixthly, Nehemiah gets all this formally recorded in the presence of the priest. He nails it down. No secret deals in back rooms here. It's all out in the open. And that is so that the outcome is public and everyone knows what must now be done and who can be held accountable for what. But that's not all. Nehemiah accepts the need to lead by example. We see in verses 14 onwards that his commitment to justice extends beyond the measures that he demands of other people. He exercises restraint so as not to add to the burdens of the people, and he also makes additional provision, we can infer from his own resources. That's all laid out in verses 14 to 18. So, so much then for the, for the narrative. It's quite a, quite a gripping narrative, I think. But we believe, don't we, that Scripture is given to us to teach us so what are some of the key principles that we can draw out of this passage to apply to our own walk with God some two and a half thousand years after the events that were recorded here? Well, as I've been reading, there are three points that I would probably wish to highlight. You are free to discern more, and I hope that you do. Point number one is the centrality of justice in God's concerns, the centrality of justice in God's concerns. 
what, what sort of flavour do we get, do we think, of the need to sort out these social and economic problems in contrast to the required focus on the task of rebuilding the walls? You know, one, on one hand this, on the other that. How are they held together? How are they in balance? Do, do we hear Nehemiah saying, oh, typical. You just start to make some decent progress with your project on the wall, and then someone comes along, and you've got to break off to deal with HR problems. Oh, well, it's a bit of a distraction. Guess I'll have to sort it out. Is that what we see? I think not. Because you see, back in chapter 1, when, ne when Nehemiah heard about the plight of Jerusalem before he returned there, his distress was partly because he knew how far from God the people had drifted. Rebuilding the walls was part of what God wanted to achieve through Nehemiah, but he wasn't just sent back as the ancient world's equivalent of a quantity surveyor. He was to be governor of Judah. And as later chapters of the book of Nehemiah will tell us, he was there to promote reforms and to encourage the people back into a right relationship with God by the means then available to them, which was to set their hearts to obey his commands. In turn, that would enable the Jewish people to be what God had always intended for them, as a beacon to all through their honouring of him as his ambassadors, in effect, to the other nations. And I believe that's also the force behind verse 9. I think that's a pivotal verse in this passage, where Nehemiah is recorded as saying, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? In other words, the rebuilding of the walls was about witness to God's presence, yes, certainly, but justice within God's people was similarly all about witness. It's part of the mission. It's part of the task. Justice is not an afterthought. It is at the heart of the character of God. And it is unsurprising to see Scripture repeatedly emphasizing the part that God's people have in seeing justice done. Putting things right can have a powerful impact in demonstrating a humble alignment with God's priorities. So what does that mean for us as Christians who know that we have a relationship with God built on what Jesus has done for us? It means, I think, that we are called to turn away from any practices of our own, whether as individuals or in groups, which oppress those in need or take advantage of their vulnerability in order to secure material advantage for ourselves. It must also mean that in our focus on getting tasks done, including, I suggest, actually tasks for the Lord, we don't, give, we don't ignore either the need for fairness or the impact of our task on others in a weaker position. But of course, you might say to me, well, I'm not really in the position of being a potential oppressor of anyone. That's not my situation at all. You might identify rather more strongly as someone who is struggling at the moment. You could be a victim of unjust circumstances in employment or in home or family life 
or elsewhere. Well, when that's our position, and I think that for many of us it is at some time or another, we can surely be clear from this passage that we have a God who is angered by injustice, who cares about our situation, and will use the obedience of others to bring change. Point number two. Dealing with injustice means actually putting things right. Dealing with injustice means actually putting things right. In this passage, those who were called on to change their ways weren't just asked to accept that they'd been caught out and to be made to promise that they'd uh, try and do a bit better in the future. No, they had to make restoration, giving back the benefits they had received by their wrong behaviour. Look at verse 11. They had to give back the property they had taken and also the interest which they had extracted. Now, there's a reference here, isn't there, to a one-hundredth part having been taken by them. Well, hundredth, that means one percent, doesn't it? Which doesn't sound to our contemporary ears very much of a rate of interest. But um, I've discovered that many scholars believe that the reference here is likely to be to a monthly charge so that over a year that becomes 12%, and much more, of course, if compounded, like your credit card bill, APR, you know, all of that stuff. So that would suggest we could be talking about some quite serious sums. So what about us? How does all that from the ancient world apply, apply to us, do we think? Well, maybe, maybe this, maybe we should remember when we are pulled up short on some way in which we have not been treating somebody right. That the situation may not be fully dealt with unless there is a restoration in some way. That might not mean something financial, of course, although in some cases it probably will. Sometimes it's too late for that, sometimes it's not appropriate. But restoration could mean, for example, the healing of someone who has been hurt by our words, actions, or neglect. What do you do about that? Or it could mean rebuilding the reputation of someone that we've trashed in the way that we've spoken about them, either deliberately or casually. You may think of other examples. Point number three the importance and power of example in leadership. The importance and power of example in leadership. Now, as we see from verses 14 and 15, the practice had been for governors to act in a way which laid additional economic burdens on the people by taking advantage of the rather lavish perks of the job. These are set out, and actually, they didn't stint themselves. They did pretty well, on the whole, by the looks of things. In other words, actually, Nehemiah decides to stand out against this practice, and he does so because, of course, in the end, all this is funded by the population, this lifestyle that the governors have for themselves. So what he's trying to do is he wants to seek to act consistently with what he preached by refusing to enrich himself at the expense of those who, frankly, couldn't afford to keep him. But it looks from verse 17 
as if he went further than that because he's recorded there as generously providing a large number of guests and visitors with their daily food, <coughs> over 100 by the looks of things. And that was very likely at his own expense. So that integrity to live lives which exhibit the character that we would encourage other people to show is often very difficult for us, if we're honest. And if you're anything like me, you often fail and you'll need forgiveness. But it's still vital that we have that. It's vital. And that's especially the case in leadership positions. And of course, particularly in our, our context here, all the more so in Christian leadership. And that's why we should remember to pray regularly for our clergy and other leaders. And that integrity, though, is important for all of us, actually, in our own way, isn't it? People around us sniff out hypocrisy and inconsistency pretty rapidly. Now, applying lessons to ourselves from these, from these events recorded here and the journey of God's people, which took place a long time before the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, isn't always straightforward for us in our, in our modern context. But if the aspects that we've thought about here have got a common theme, I suggest it might be that the outworking of our love for God is found in part, at least, in the love extended to others, even if that involves substantial cost to ourselves. And in that connection, and, and perhaps in place of a, of, a, of a final prayer, as we conclude, I wonder if we might leave ourselves with a moment of quiet reflection on Jesus' words to his disciples recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 34-35. Familiar, very familiar words to us. He says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Amen.